to the ancient eye without the use of spyglass, only seven of these wanderers, or planets as they were known, could be seen among the thousands of lights that bejeweled the firmament. The wanderers were different. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and Sweden, Matthew Russell and Lindbold Christmas. Oh, yeah, baby. Christian Huygens. That was that was Christian Huygens talking about the planets. Welcome back to the show, Lynn. How are you? Hello, I'm lovely. Thank you. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Yeah, very very busy at the moment. I'm yeah. kind of once I get through this week, I'll be back to being sort of almost human. But I've got a, a ridiculously hard week ahead of me. <laughs> Well, I feel like but, I've been saying that every week for the past 20 I years. Know. It's like, if I can just get a... through this week, everything will be fine cruising. And then you start planning, you you sort of, as everything comes up, you're like, oh, I have to do this thing. Okay, well, I'll do it this next week. Because then that, that, that week is empty. Mm. And then by the time that week rolls around, it's not empty anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's busy, busy, isn't it? But uh, at least we're coming up to Christmas time. Exactly. Which, of course, is super relaxing and not at all stressful with zero travel or family obligations. So a very relaxing oh, yeah, time it, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, exactly. A- absolutely. So today, Lynn, I, I thought we were going to talk about, uh, we'd have a little chat about Mercury and uh, Bepi Colombo. Yes. Because the last of my little snippets from the ESA Open Day is with Elsa Montagnon who is the uh, Bepi Colombo spacecraft operations manager. Do you know her? Have you ever met Elsa? I actually, I do know the name. I haven't met her personally. I actually have a, um, you know, I, I don't really know how to bring this up, but actually Bepi Colombo and I have some painful memories together. Oh no. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be vulnerable here. I appreciate, uh, you know, some respect in this uh, difficult time while I recount <laughs> the story. Um, I was actually supposed to be at the Bepi Colombo launch uh, in 2018, but um, my research project at the time meant that I could not because our supercomputers were misbehaving, so I had to go to England instead of French Guiana. And then when I got to England, there were loads of power cuts and the supercomputers didn't work anyway, so it was all for nothing and I could have been at the launch, but I wasn't. So it's okay. It's not like I'll regret that for the rest of my life or anything. Oh no, that's an that's an <laughs> yeah. absolute nightmare. I know <laughs> that I really know. is a, that is a that's a nightmare. Well, the but good you know thing what? is I've actually got t- two little snippets of Elsa Montagna, but because I I went to ESOC and saw there. Oh yes, there's a, there's a little model at, at ESOC that's like um where they run all the the computers and stuff, and so I've got a little snippet of her explaining that when I was at ESOC in Darmstadt. And also, obviously, from ESA Open Day. Of but course. yeah, I, I love Bepi Colombo because I was actually I in too. French Guiana and, and, and saw it being prepared for the launch that you really? missed. Really? Gee, oh, yeah, wow, cool. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know what? Joking aside, I, I do love Bepi Colombo. I'm, you know, clenched fist aside. Um, it's actually a really, really amazing mission. Um, I have nothing but exciting, <laughs> exciting things to say about it. Let's talk about Mercury first just so we can set the scene for where poor old Beppe Colombo has to <laughs> <Yeah>. get to. <laughs> yeah. It's not a very nice uh, scene, um, actually, I guess. No, it's not. It's not It's not the best of scenes, is it? The old yeah. uh, Mercury. Matt, what's it's, your favorite um, planet? Yeah, and why is it Mercury? <laughs> <laughs> why is it Mercury? Uh, because, it's named, uh, because it's named after the lead singer of Queen, 
band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was called something else, something stupid that no one even remembers. And then after that, mm. they were like, guys, we have a new name. <laughs> uh, after the Live Aid performance, yeah. they renamed the, it Mercury. Yeah. I can't even called, remember what it was called before yeah. that. I think it was called Quicksilver <laughs> or something. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was called the Jumping yeah. Planet, I believe. Yeah, the Ass- exactly. The, the Assyrians called it the yeah. Jumping Planet, or or Naboo. I believe. Oh yeah. There we go. Yeah, it was. That's what it was called. Beautiful. Of course, Hermes as well. The Greeks called it Hermes. Oh yes, the, the, the postal service. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, isn't Hermes the name of the spacecraft in? In one of those films about going to Mars. Um, that In sounds... fact, hang on a second. It, it was the, wasn't it the name of the, the, um, of, of the original space shuttle? No, it was, a, oh, or... no, no. It was the, the uh, Knesset, the European one. It was supposed oh, to be, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was supposed to be in the 70s. It was going to be, you know, superficially similar to the space shuttle. Um, and um, we, we, I like to imagine that alternative timeline where that actually happened. And uh, we had a beautiful oh. ESA space shuttle. Yeah, well, maybe had you can write that alternate timeline for the next season oh, of yes. All Mankind. Yes. And then we'll start a, 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 sh- like a spin-off podcast where we go through the space, <laughs> space fic, the fanfic. <laughs> so tell, tell me an interesting fact about Mercury. Hit me with hit me with your favorite Mercury Ooh. fact. Now we've established that is Mercury your favorite planet? Then okay. Well, I'm so glad you asked. I actually the other day I was trying to think of what my favorite planets are, and I mean it's a little bit, it's a little bit like asking which child do you love the most. Of course, you tell the children I love you all equally, but maybe there's one that's a little bit better. And <laughs> I mean, I think at least Mercury is in like my top four. Which is actually not very flattering when there's not that many. <laughs> not. There's only seven. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, okay, so in my work, I like rocky terrestrial planets. And mm-hmm. I mean, the competitors are Venus and Mars. I would actually argue that maybe Mars is overrated. <gasps> Gasp. I know. I might get cancelled now. But mm, I, I actually... I, I, I'm, I, I agree. I mean, Compared it's... Compared to Venus, how exciting yeah. is Venus? Venus is is like, it's hard to beat Venus realistically. So I, I would say Mercury is maybe my second favorite planet. On average, what yeah. planet is closest to the Earth? Mm. Ah, well, you would think either Venus or Mars, right? Because they're the ones that are uh, next to Earth at all times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what's the answer? It is, is indeed Mercury. <gasps> what? Because it's, in fact, it's the closest to all the planets because its orbit is only 88 days. So it's always kind of, the, 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 a lot of the time, it's on the same side yes. as the planet that you're measuring it to. So, yeah. Of it's, course, uh, yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, I, I guess if you're, if you're picturing the solar system, if um, Venus and Mars can both be on the other side of the sun at some point, which means that it's very the, then very far from, from the Earth. Mm. Now, here's, here's the other one that, that I think is like even surprised everyone most people thought that there was that mercury is going to be tidally locked now you can explain tidally locked lynn i know you can (laughs) tidally locking is something that happens uh very often when you have planets that are close to their host star um where they are basically orbiting it in such a fashion that they have one side of the planet that's permanently facing towards uh, the star, 
and one that's permanently away from it. So you would have a permanent day side and a permanent night side. You know, on Earth, we have days and nights and we're spinning around and, you know, that we have, depending on where you are at what time of the year, we have roughly the same amount of uh, day and night at any one point on Earth. Um, but for many planets that are closer to the host stars, and we see this a lot in exoplanets, um, you have this uh, one side of the planet that is constantly facing the sun or its sun, and one side that's constantly facing away. Kind of like the moon, which is tightly locked to Earth. We have this one face of the moon that we see all the time. Yeah, and, and presumably that's because they're close to their sort of parent yeah. orbiting body, right? Exactly. And it's just to do with the energies and things like that involved in sort of slowing it down. But exactly. It, so everyone just assumed that for a long time with with um, Mercury. Just thought because Mercury's orbit is about eighty eight days or something like that, and they just assumed mm -hmm. that the day itself would last about eighty eight days as well. So obviously, it's tidally locked. It would rotate one rotation for every orbit of the sun. However. They measured it from Arecibo Observatory, which RIP, poor old Arecibo, and and realised that in fact, using uh, radar, they actually uh, realised that the planet's rotational period was fifty nine days. So that's only very very recently that they sort of figured that out. And do you know? Yeah, wow. Do you know who who noticed the mathematical um, coincidence? He thought perhaps between 59 days and 88 days do you know who noticed that that was two th that 59 is two thirds of 88 do you know who no, who spotted that no i don't please tell me it was none other than Beppe <gasps> colombo mr Beppe. yeah so that's one of the reasons why um, Beppe Colombo is called Beppe Colombo after the great Italian astronomer Giuseppe Colombo, who noticed this weird three to two resonance orbit that Mercury has around the sun. That's amazing. Yeah, how how cool is that? Now I I have no idea why it does a three to two resonance. Do you like any? <laughs> but I think Giuseppe Colombo actually explained it, but I don't know. I don't know anything about it. Um, no, I don't actually know that. I mean, we do see a lot of these uh, weird resonances in the universe or, well, in our solar system um, quite a lot, but I'm not sure actually why exactly that, that number comes out of um, Mercury and, and, and the Sun. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you see it a lot in Saturn's ring systems, don't you? All those weird exactly. sort of ratios and of resonances. Yeah, and we found a couple of uh, exoplanet systems where you have some funky uh, resonances that come out between the different planets and their host star. Hmm. Now, the other thing that Giuseppe Colombo was pretty hot on was his ability to... Ha, ha, uh, ha. Sort of, <laughs> was his ability <laughs> to uh, work out things like the fact that to get to Mercury, you were going to need to have a gravity assist. Of course, yeah. These, the gravity assist, I think it was uh, used for the first time for going to, to Mercury. I, I think the Russians used it on something like Luna 10 or something like that. But, okay. But, you're, but I think you're right. And certainly interplanetary-wise, in terms of planet to planet, yeah, I think Mariner 10 was the first to go yeah. 
was the first to use that, uh, yeah, an, a gravity assist from another planet to get to another planet. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, it takes more more energy to escape the solar system actually than it takes to to reach Mercury. Because the problem is that when you're so close to the sun, to actually go towards Mercury but not end up at the sun. You need to do some pretty heavy braking, if you if you can imagine that. I mean, imagine that you imagine you're wearing roller skates and you're going towards into like a big bowl, and the sun is basically the the bowl in the in the bottom. Um, but instead of actually ending up at the bottom, you want to catch another skater who is nearer to it. You'd have to actually sort of catch up with them in a weird way, and and yet also avoid the the big um, sort of apex in the middle in the in the middle or in the bottom. Yeah, so, so it's actually it's actually pretty tricky to reach Mercury. You think, no, oh, you, it's not that far, but it's it's actually much more challenging than that. Did you misspeak? Did you do you actually mean it's more energy to get to the get to Mercury than it is to leave the solar system? Sorry, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, because I yeah, it, it's just you've got this huge change of velocity, haven't you? You've got you've got to somehow exactly. yeah get get in and then sort of slow down in time to get in orbit around mercury so do you know exactly. how do you know how bepi colombo the spacecraft does it i imagine you're going to tell me <laughs> well well i well i kind of can <laughs> i can't remember go the on. exact <laughs> details but elsa does go into it so it, it does a cr- it does a whole crazy amount of going yeah, past going past all the different planets so it's already done a couple it's done one round earth uh, a mm-hmm. gravity assist came back to earth and then <laughs> after going around the sun comes back to earth does a gravity assist and it, to slow itself down rather than to speed yeah. itself up like the voyagers did and i always think the greatest thing about that is every time so when uh, bepi colombo came back round earth to slow itself down it has fractionally sped up earth in its orbit so wow. our days our days are ever so slightly sorry our years are now ever so slightly shorter thanks to Beppy Colombo can you believe that <laughs> gee thanks beppy <laughs> thanks a lot yeah <laughs> which means that, which means i'm aging slightly faster than i need to yeah. how <laughs> annoying I'm, I'm is that i'm going to be 85 i'm going to be 85 and be like you know <laughs> it's not really my fault <laughs> Do you know what I love is that because um, I, I have I have this mug right there's a there's a wonderful mug that I'm sure is probably still on sale somewhere um, the, this ESA mug of the Pepe Colombo and it has all the dates of the flybys um, where you know it says like the 20th of June or whatever and the year with the sort of uh, checklist of all these flybys and I'm now kind of halfway through my mug and um, so so looking at it and seeing that you know that sort of I think 2025 is the last date and it started in 2018 so I'm gonna feel emotional in 2025 when I look at this stupid mug and be like wow you've had it for <laughs> the whole these time years. yeah so yeah it's, oh, it's, yeah yeah I got it just before the launch so it's done it yeah so launched in 2018 did a fly uh-huh. by earth in 2020 earth flyby yeah and then it's done a couple of venus flybys now Two Venuses, yeah. And yeah. and what I'm I love, I love that the timing of this was so amazing that um this uh, famous phosphine paper that came out in September twenty twenty where some astronomers um um published that they think that they had found detections of this gas, phosphine, uh, in Venus's atmosphere. And it was a pretty controversial claim. And then 
I think it was September that this came out. And then all these ESA scientists were like, well, we're going to be in the neighborhood on the 15th. We can check it out if you want. (laughs) And because it happened to be doing this Venus flyby just less than a month after, they were like, yeah, we, you know, we'll turn on our instruments. We weren't gonna, but we will. And so now we got the, we, we, they actually did this, um, uh, this, um, uh, you know, attempt to, attempted detection when they uh, flew by uh, in October 2020. I haven't actually read if there's any data that's come out yet from that, but I just love that timing. Yeah, it's it such was, a great it, thing with scientists when they yeah, get to was, do that. It was awesome because I actually emailed ESA to find out if they were going to switch on their instruments. And I got an email straight back saying, oh, yes, we are, and we'll let you know what's uh, happening. But they <laughs> yeah, said that... I bet. They, <laughs> which they haven't but that's only out of yeah. my lazy that's only out of my laziness for not following up yeah. but yeah but i believe that that second more recent one which was actually mm. pretty much only a couple of days after before we spoke to elsa in this interview that's coming up oh right um um i think that second flyby was a lot nearer so it should actually have better data anyway yeah but i think yeah. that that phosphine thing has definitely um kind of slowed down a little bit hasn't it i think so and um i mean we're now we're now in december 2021 and um i think it was october 1st 2021 they had the first mercury flyby um and did you know that that occurred on what would have been the 101st birthday of bepi colombo the human that, not the mission <laughs> I was how great say, is that timing it's a very old spacecraft no that that is insane <laughs> that's insane presumably that's a coincidence and not him being incredibly good at um i wonder i bet you i bet you any money that they they sort of did the sort of tentative schedule and they realized it was going to be on 2nd of october someone and then someone was like guys what if we we launch a day earlier (laughs) exactly (laughs) well that's i mean i suppose there's a one in one in 365 (laughs) 65 yeah exactly or something like that you know they should have launched a year earlier and then it could have been on his 100th birthday do you say 101 there 101 yeah Oh man. Now close but no cigar. So even with all those gravity assists, and this is something that also that Elsa mentions, is that they have to use um they have to use lots of different forms of propulsion to actually make this thing work. So they're gonna they have ion really prop- yeah, so they've they 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 have got normal rockets, like liquid fueled mm. rockets. But uh, on sure. board for the really heavy duty stuff, but they've also got ion thrusters as well, which is, I believe, the first time they've used ion thrusters in the inner solar system. Wow! So yes, yeah, yeah. so there's four solar electric ion thrusters, and, and I've stood next to the solar panels of Bepi Colombo, and they are massive oh. to power these <laughs> things as well. So yeah, yeah. At least there's some, at least there's plenty of sunlight near Mercury. <laughs> Yeah, it's not like, but yeah, but that's probably a problem in terms of like Absolutely. the solar, solar panels that you can use and how you have to have them so they don't overheat and all those kind of things. Yeah, in well, fact, there's that one. There's um, because Bepi Colombo, I'm sure, I'm sure that uh, uh, Elsa will talk about it. You know, it has these different components, different modules, um, and if I remember correctly, there's uh, at least one of them has this cool feature where in order to keep itself cool when it's, you know, being blasted by the sun that's basically a few, what feels like a few centimeters away from the sun. Um, and it actually spins around very fast to keep cool, like a little mm. ballerina. Yeah, the, yeah, spinning. It's, it's a spinner, isn't it? So Exactly. It's also got another very cool feature, 
and there's some pictures of it with the um uh there's there's some pictures of it with the with the model that they used for um to help with the design uh and yeah. they look they look like venetian blinds they're these fins that cover <laughs> that, that actually cover the radiators right. but they look they look exactly like really crappy office blinds <laughs> 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 but they're not because the, there's a test model of for Bepi Colombo. In fact, Elsa mentions this as well. It's actually in the Science Museum in London if you want to go and see. Oh, really? But it's missing those fins because those fins are the actual ones that went off on the wow. on the actual flight model. So they're obviously quite expensive. <laughs> <laughs> however <Yeah>. they're designed <laughs> hopefully they won't do that thing that office blinds do where they immediately start sort of one goes one way oh. one goes 45 degrees <laughs> i oh, assume yeah. they're a little bit better yeah the worst thing is those <laughs> is the actual stick bit where you can use it to sort of make the blinds less see-through or more see-through oh my god bit, yeah the, and that bit always breaks at the top and why do they make oh, them always. so feeble why do they make them so feeble so annoying this is I, the, I the this Venetian is the blinds. deep state Venetian blind uh, <laughs> industry. <laughs> They've got their fingers in many pies. Wake up, was, sheeple! Was Giuseppe uh, Colombo a Venetian? Do you think? <laughs> oh my God! And, this goes deeper than any of us could have ever thought. <laughs> and and did he go blind looking into the telescope at, <gasps> at, the, at Venus because it's so close to the sun? <laughs> I gotta go. I have some calls to make. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe the Venetian blinds are named after Giuseppe Colombo. No, I think in I fact, think this is it. Here's an interesting fact about Mercury. It's one of the only planets on. that Hubble can't look at because it's too close oh, to the sun. Of it's course. too close to the sun, so they don't don't use the Hubble on uh, yeah. on Mercury because <laughs> my it's eyes. yeah. My eyes, I yeah. am blinded. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, it they, is, they, it is hard to it. to observe Mercury. I mean, this is this is kind of this is a little bit why I like it so much. I feel like maybe um, the the sheen has rubbed off from Mars on me because I mean, okay, fine, I love Mars. I'm not gonna lie, but I'm saying that Mars now we we we've uh, been so uh, thorough in in trying to study it in the last few decades. Venus is mysterious because we can't really uh, we we haven't really been able to see what's uh, on the surface um before and then mercury as well i mean both of these are very poorly studied actually um for different reasons so i think this is maybe why i like mercury so much i'm like what are you <laughs> who is she yeah well beppy colombo should should answer quite a lot of questions yes. lots and lots of Absolutely. Little, lots and lots of questions because there's quite a lot of water ice on Mercury yeah. as well, they reckon. Considering how ludicrous that sounds, there's quite a lot. Guess how many countries have been involved in the mission? Oh wow! Um, well, it's ESA and JAXA, right? Mm-hmm. So Japan plus the ESA member states. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rough, roughly sixteen. That's, that's my cop out. It is a bit of a cop out. Sixteen different yeah. countries. One thousand. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, one thousand two hundred engineers have worked on the mission, and I, 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 am I a, am I allowed to mention the University of Helsinki, or is that, or as, or is that? Oh, that's okay. Uh, no, we just hate Denmark here in Sweden. Oh, okay, okay. So you're all right great. with you're <laughs> right with the Finnish. Okay. Denmark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yes, that so the University of Helsinki, and mm. um, and. 
some British universities as well, the University of Leicester and the University oh, yeah. of Ab- Aberystwyth, uh, helped okay. design two of the instruments, MIX and SIX, the Mercury Imaging oh. X-ray Spectrometer and the Solar Intensity X-ray Spectrometer. And MIX and SIX are Finnish for Y, question mark, and SIX is Finnish for That's Why, exclamation mark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That's amazing. Yes. So mix and six are the two instruments that mix University of Helsinki. Mix and fix. University, yeah, have a mix and six <laughs> from the University of Helsinki and with a little help from some British universities as well. And, That's and the, incredible. And the, and the Brits actually built the electric propulsion, kinetic, yeah. So, yeah, totally wow. international effort. Now, the one thing that yeah, I re- that I loved, by the way, when when yeah, I know, did you? You've been to French Guiana, haven't you? I haven't. What? Oh no! Oh no! Come on, come on, Matt! I just opened my heart up less and then, than and, twenty minutes and, ago, and you just I've... pried open a bucket of salt. I was like, oh, oh, you've been to French Guiana, haven't you? Oh, uh... oh no, that's right. Your dreams were crushed. Oh Jeez. no. Yeah, Ow, so ouch. no, I have not been to French Guiana, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> so one of the things that I saw, I was looking through the window into the room while they were fueling Beppe Colombo up. They're literally that, there. That sounds the... like you also were not welcome there, actually, if you were looking through the window. That makes sense. I'm now picturing you like in the bushes. I, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely wasn't. Uh, <laughs> I definitely wasn't allowed in that room. Put it like. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. In <laughs> yeah, fact, we, we, we we all had our um, cameras taken off us to check that we hadn't taken pictures of certain things. It's very oh, wow. interesting. But uh, yeah. there I was looking through the window with Eric Berger. Yeah. At at, right. um, at the. At these people stitching the blankets, hand stitching these uh, thermal space blankets that go Aww. over the um, over the actual Bepi Colombo itself, you know, to control. They should have got a little group of nanas all all knitting blankets together. Well, I have to say, I I think they were actually all women. <laughs> weirdly it has to be coincidence but it was but it was quite it was quite amazing they were there like just hand stitching these blankets 97 layers of aluminium plastic and glass ceramics i can't imagine it so that you know these are you know they keep the whole thing at kind of room temperature as much as possible because you know computers don't like going from ridiculous temperature to ridiculous temperature (laughs) Four, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't either, but no, really four hundred degrees C on the sun side, so that's like yeah. twice a pizza oven to yeah. min- <laughs> minus one hundred ninety degrees centigrade on the night side, which is pretty yeah. much hell- Helsinki in the winter, right? Yeah, Christmas, Christmas in Sweden. It's, it's Christmas uh, in Sweden. basically that now. <laughs> <laughs> so there, yeah, there you go. So it's you know that is that's the that's the design challenge, I'd imagine, isn't it? With uh, yeah, Beppy, Beppy Colombo is getting that whole thing, so it act- actually works. Well, that's the thing, and I mean, it's something that hasn't really th- this proximity to the sun has really not been uh, an issue with other with other planets that we've explored, other other bodies. Mm. Um, so it's really quite a unique challenge. It, yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. Now, who, what do you think's hotter, the surface of Mercury or the surface of Venus? that's uh you shouldn't ask me that because i know the answer so i'm gonna say 
oh, I don't know which one is hotter, <laughs> Oh, come please. on. No, I, yeah. knew you, I knew you knew the answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Venus is hotter. Yeah, it only, only gets to 427 degrees C in the day. Yeah, quote on only. Yeah. <laughs> only, come on. Uh, it only gets to that. Yeah. Now, which which has the smallest axial tilt out of Venus and Mercury, or or Mercury and any planet? Um, I'm not sure actually about axial tilts. I think Mercury is, is doesn't have a very big axial tilt, though, right? In fact, yeah, you're correct. It has the smallest at only one thirtieth mm-hmm. of a degree. I'm getting nervous now. I feel like I'm on I'm on jeopardy. You are a little bit, but you did well. You've yeah. done well with you. You're, you're two out. I haven't of two used any lifeline. <laughs> yeah, you, you got two Still out. Have of two. my lifelines now. I yeah. want a true or false on this one. <laughs> okay, okay. Does wait? Hold out on. Of, okay, I'm out ready. of all the planets, does Mercury mm-hmm. have the most eccentric orbit? I know it does have. I'm going to say true. That is true because Pluto yes! is no because Pluto <laughs> is no longer a planet. But I think uh, yeah, Pluto, it, Pluto would Pluto would have won. But 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 yeah, you're correct. Only because yeah. Pluto, yeah, it's six. It, it perihelion. It's only sixty six percent the distance of aphelion. Whereas wow, Earth, okay, that, yeah. So it's massively eccentric. That Earth is significant. Is, yeah, Earth is ninety seven percent, and that's you know yeah, that's so, a, yeah, so that yeah. changes by millions of miles. But yeah, Mercury's yeah. is yeah is is insane. Yeah. Earth is ninety seven percent, and we're like it's absolutely not circular at all. Don't be insane. <laughs> so yeah, no, this is this is uh, significant. Yeah, so it's it's properly pine nut shaped its orbit <laughs> yeah. rather than Ooh, a, rather than a sombrero. Yeah, toasted yeah. pine nuts. In it this is case. Toast, it is toasted pine nuts. Yeah, because <laughs> I I do think that that because with the Earth, obviously, the distance to the sun makes virtually well makes no difference really. To the uh, mm. temp- to the temperature here on Earth, it's much more to do with our axial tilt. What? what yeah, but uh, Mercury having such a small is. one. Yeah, exactly. That properly, definitely uh, experiences seasons based on its distance from the sun rather than its axial tilt. Yeah. Although probably the seasons doesn't really have them because it's just intensely hot on one side. Oh, actually. I suppose it must be weird, mustn't it? Because the planet must go through vast times of being very, very hot and slowly getting, slowly turning into night. And I mean slowly. You can walk around the planet. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. So if if you want a uh, slow romantic sunset stroll, I would not recommend Mercury. Um, no, I was, I was uh, distracted because I was trying to think Mercury's atmosphere because it is very thin. So um, this is also quite an impact on, you know, if you think about weather and temperature on planets, um, then, then atmospheres are, are very, very crucial in how they sort of distribute the heat. Because you can have a tidally locked planet where you have all the um, sort of sunlight coming on one side, but then you can have these dynamic processes in an atmosphere, which would then sort of distribute the heat. So you can still have, well, more evenly distributed, let's say, um, heat uh, across the planet, but Mercury doesn't even have that going for it. Great. So the thing that's blowing my mind is that we've found so much water that is seemingly so abundant in the universe. Oh yeah, I... like that. If that's something that you know, if, if forty years ago, I think people would have been impressed yeah, by. Yeah, and now here's something I really didn't know, and that is 
what do you th- do you think that mercury has a magnetic field you know like earth has a magnetic a magnetosphere <laughs> i happen to know that yes mercury does have a fairly significant uh, magnetic field it's not just fairly significant it's actually bigger than earth's yeah 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 which, yeah. Is, which is pretty cool isn't it so they must have it must have loads of which is incredibly yeah, molten cool. metal like sloshing around inside inside the core if if anyone is playing bingo back home, how many times has Lynn mentioned exoplanets on a podcast that's not about exoplanets? Here's like number five, I think. Um, the thing about exoplanets <laughs> <laughs> is that um, you have uh, so many of them that are closer to their parent stars. And so magnetic fields and planets and how they interact is actually a really interesting um, and important topic. And so figuring out how magnetic fields happen in stars is already kind of a question mark, but we're working on that. But then on top of that, figuring out how magnetic fields are generated in planets um, is is an even bigger challenge because, as I've said before, you know, stars are all basically the same thing. You have bigger ones and smaller ones, and then you have, you know, different characteristics that arise from whatever their initial mass was. But overall, we kind of know the life cycle. Like we know, okay, this star has, uh, you know, one solar mass. That means it's this type of star. And that means it should roughly follow this life cycle. But the thing about planets is that they are all so unique and and they are are much, much more diverse in in their composition and their life cycles and, and all crazy things like that. So figuring out how magnetic fields arise in stars, the fact that that's already a challenge and we already you know, have so many more stars to compare to each other to sort of triangulate an answer for things like that. And the fact that we don't know that 100% to then say, well, what causes magnetic fields in planets? That's an even bigger question. What are magnets anyway? Wow. That's one of my favorite ever Feynman clips is him explaining to someone how he can't explain what magnets are to him. <laughs> Yeah. Don't 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 ask your local scientists what's yeah, a magnet. They, they'll they they'll get, get they sad. Get a, he almost it's <laughs> they get he insecure. He almost gets in a bit of a mood with the bloke that asks him a question. That's that's the that's the funny. Yeah. <laughs> now, um uh, my favorite yeah. thing about Mercury is it was one of the very first clues that Newton was wrong. I love that. Expand please. Well, as Mercury goes round the sun, it, the, it's it's its actual mm-hmm. rotation, particularly the slow rate rotation at perihelion, can't quite be explained by Newtonian mechanics, even if mm. you take into account all the perturbations of the other known planets. So, as you look at it, it's like there's something else going on here that's not quite right. So it's yeah. it's all but it's not quite what you'd expect if you just used Newton's laws of motion. Uh, and right. and this was something that was known by a guy called Urban Le Verrier, who analysed the transits, the, uh, yeah, Ooh, and, uh, observations of the transits of Mercury between 1697 and 1848, and and showed that it was that there was something wrong, that the prediction was wrong, so there was something wrong, and it took Albert Einstein's mm. general theory of relativity to show that Mercury is moving so damn fast that actually you have to take into consideration um, relativity. It's actually, there is, there is a relative, yeah. That's amazing. So it's, it's, it's one, it was one of the things that everyone was going, yeah, this, this is a big mystery. That is one of the things that everyone went, oh, yeah. God, this Albert Einstein paper kind of 
explains that. How cool is this? So, yeah. yeah that, this Einstein guy, I think he, he might, might be onto, be onto something. something. He seems pretty yeah. smart. So, yeah, yeah I, I think Mercury played a sort of huge role in that, which which is one Absolutely. of my favorite things. So maybe Mercury is my favorite um, planet. I don't know. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it's it's. You heard it yeah, here first. It might even be. It might not even be the planet it once was. It might be a planet that got smashed to bits, just leaving the core of a planet behind. Although I don't think. I think that mm-hmm. evidence is getting weaker and weaker. That 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 it's actually the core of a of a of an old yeah. planet. But you'll be able I, to tell me more I, about I'm, that. I seem to recall that. <laughs> Well, I seem to recall that one of the reasons, one of the motivations for Bepi Colombo, like obviously there are a number of things we want to investigate, but one of them is is to do with um, formation history, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, because, um, okay, well, now we're on to number six. Another thing about exoplanets, <laughs> <clears throat> because like I said, that they are um, so often close to their host star, uh, you know, investigating how uh, how you know, nearby planets form near their host stars. That's that's another important piece of the puzzle as well, because Mercury is is more at a kind of distance from its host star that that we see often. In a, you know, I actually I have to confess that when I picture Bepi Colombo, I do not picture it how it looks. I picture the little cartoon <laughs> ones, <laughs> you know, from the ESA cartoons. Like that's all I see Aww. in my head. Same with yeah, Rosetta. <laughs> I think ESA do a pr- pretty good job with their little cartoons. We should Absolutely. mention, of course, Bepi Colombo is is yes, a, a European and Japanese, which I think in itself is is pretty unique. Having a spacecraft that's carrying two, really two spacecraft, a stack of spacecraft, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I think we're entering a really exciting um, time in 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 planetary science history because there are so many. There's kind of like this rejuvenation for for um, solar system exploration. There's so many fun, exciting um, solar system uh, missions on, on the horizon. And, and Beppe Colombo is, is definitely one of my favorites. But, you know, we've also got Juice coming up. We've got all this talk about new Venus missions and all this stuff. So I think I think the 2030s are going to be pretty pretty exciting. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I think there, there will be a renaissance. I mean, I think it's actually a little bit embarrassing how little we know about Venus and Mercury, really, <laughs> considering how much we know about ex- some yeah. exoplanets. And and you know and yeah. we're seeing black holes collide and all those kind of things. Yet we don't really know much about Venus <laughs> and Mercury. It's just crazy, isn't it? So yeah, yeah I, it's uh, yeah exactly. solar system missions. I think we should definitely have more of them, and there's more of them in the pipeline, which is super exciting, isn't it? Yes. Um, shall we have yeah. a quick listen to uh, um, my couple of interviews? I think I might just roll them in 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 order of done. I would love done to. It. So. Bishti Bashti Bosh Ekutai. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Elsa Montagnon, the mission manager, recently appointed mission manager for Bepi Colombo, is joining us here on on, on uh, ESA Open Day, on the virtual stage, on the virtual day. Welcome, Elsa. Hello. Good to Hello. see you. Hello, Elsa. Good Hello. to see you. <laughs> Elsa, well, you are working as a mission manager for Bepi Colombo. I think that I think the first question I have for you is uh, sort of the elephant in the room and then we can go into more details of the mission, but something very important happened yesterday. Yes. Uh, the sort of breaking news in a way. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that first. 
Yes, uh, two days ago we had our uh, very. I mean, two days ago or yesterday, depending on the time zone you're sitting in, we had our first flyby of Mercury. So Bekfi Colombo is a, is a European and Japanese mission to planet Mercury. Um, we've been working decades on this program, and uh, well, basically on the first of October UTC time, we made our first encounter with uh, our target planet, and that's a very exciting moment for the whole community. Um, some pictures have been released uh, publicly, and uh, they are basically the first glimpse we have of, of, of Mercury on, on this program. Um, so we're very excited of getting a first taste of, uh, of what we're, we're getting at. Of course, there will be much more to come in the in the next years when we arrive in 2025, and in the years that will follow. But it's um, it's a big reward to 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 get to that moment and uh, pass it successfully. So. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited about this mission because it's. Uh, I was really lucky enough. Julio took me out to Karoo and I and I actually saw Bepi Colombo it being fueled up, and, and I also went to Damstadt and actually uh, Elsa, you you were talking in front of the the model that's in in Dam Damstadt. That's the kind of technical model that you do a lot of your work on so so i, I feel really connected to bepi colombo i think i think it's i mean it's an obviously it's an it's an amazing mission can can you sort of give us a a a sort of a quick rundown of the of the entire mission and, and its purpose and, and how you've done this collaboration with the Japanese. Yeah, sure. So the, the mission is aimed at planet Mercury, as we said, and uh, we are privileged to go there not only with one spacecraft, but actually with two. Um, thanks to our collaboration with the Japanese Space Agency, we will have uh, a European orbiter that will fly close to the planet to uh, study things like a surface and composition, um, exosphere, uh, the, the volatiles that are there, the chemical processes that go on close to the surface and the Japanese satellite will fly a little bit further away and will focus on uh, the interaction with uh, solar winds, uh, with uh, um, basically the, magnet the magnetic field, the magnetosphere and all these uh, this effects that take place a bit further away from the planet. So it's a unique chance actually to have two systems flying around the planet in parallel. Um, that's uh, not normally the case, you normally go one by one but in this case we have two. So at the moment the two are flying mated with each other, they are married let's say and they are mounted on top of a transfer module that is taking us there, uh, carries chemical propulsion, electric propulsion, and two huge solar arrays to feed the electric propulsion with power. And the, the, the Japanese satellite is protected inside a, a structure to protect it from the sun. So we launched in October 2018 uh, from Kourou, as you mentioned, uh, with an Ariane 5 rocket. And what is there? No, I was not there. I was in the control room, ready to take over to take over control. I never get to see the launch. Oh. <laughs> so we, we should find uh, we a mission that you're not involved with. <laughs> <laughs> we see it on screen. So um, and the journey is very long because um, it, it's it's difficult to uh, to go to Mercury. It's very demanding. You cannot just uh, go express like uh, when we go to Mars. You just uh, launch on a direct trajectory to Mars, and then you do a huge break in maneuver and you're there there the huge braking maneuver will take tons of propellant that we cannot carry we cannot afford to carry that much so we use instead the the energy of the planets to slow us down so we had uh, we will have nine such planetary flyby the technique is cool we've had already four uh one by earth and venus last year and then venus and mercury this year 
uh, and we will have five more Mercury flyby to, to gradually reduce the velocity of the craft such that in December 25, we can enter into orbit. And when we enter, we have to uh, deliver our Japanese uh, colleagues to their target scientific orbit and then further go down and reach all scientific orbit. And then the fun can start. <laughs> the scientific fun can, can start. Um, yeah, so we still have a long way to go, but uh, still we, we should celebrate this, uh, this milestone of this weekend. It was very important for the mission. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the orbital mechanics of these things I mean, was that was that the deciding factor of sort of taking two spacecraft on the mission? You know, you, how how on earth did someone sit down and go, oh, maybe we should invite the Japanese, or or did the Japanese invite the Europeans? I don't know. Uh, to this kind of like vastly complicated piece of orbital dancing around the solar system. Yeah, well, there, there's a bit of um, of uh, critical mass involved in the sense uh, when the mission was born uh, very, very early, I'm talking two decades ago, we, we were hoping to even have a surface element to this, which uh, uh, it was so, I mean, it's such a challenge to, to visit Mercury that, okay, we had to drop the surface element <laughs> rather rapidly, I would say. Um, uh, and, and then, okay, it's a question that our Japanese colleagues were also looking into a program to, to Mercury and then uh, resources are knapp and the technology is Difficult and and then we 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 sat together and and we decided that uh, there would be benefit in doing it together and uh, and and that's how it ended up to to be like that. Of course, it's um it's quite a challenge on top of a challenge. I mean, going to Mercury would never have been an easy thing to do. Uh, now on top of that, we have a very modular satellite with multiple separations. Seven years after launch, within three months, we go from a stack configuration to uh, every module having uh, going to live its own life. Um, this adds complexity and risks to the operations and it's undeniable and complexity to the design uh, but okay we've done all these emissions so uh, so let's do it this way <laughs> it's a, it's a quite a novel approach I would say okay we're used to stack things on other programs no but for interplanetary missions it's, it's a bit of a first let's say for us in ESA all our other spacecraft so far were standalone so uh, it's taking us into a bit of a new domain at that level but um, uh, the, the science reward will be will be enormous I think uh, that must also have been a criteria in deciding this configuration, the fact of having these two systems in parallel is, uh, is tremendously advantageous from a scientific point of view. You mentioned seven years of, of navigation and fly nine flybys. Is Mercury one of the more complicated planets to get into orbit? Yes, it's quite hard to get into orbit because uh, you have to slow down too much. <laughs> Otherwise, you just fly by. Basically, it's, uh, it's the, the relative velocity match that you need is uh, it's just gigantic compared to, to other objects in the solar system. So it's, it would always have been a difficult thing to do. Now, it's thanks to, uh, to the, the scientist who gave its name to our mission, Giuseppe Colombo, a scientist from the 20th century. Uh, he advised NASA, actually, on how to use combination of planetary flybys to, uh, to get to, to visit Mercury. And it's based on this recommendation that the Mariner 10 mission in the 70s uh, got to do its uh, three historic flybys of Mercury, returning the first data we ever got uh, from the planet uh, close by. Um, so we, we decided to honor him by, by naming our mission after him. Uh, but that's, uh, that's, that shows it's, it's very special from that point of view, yes. Um, Elsa, could you, because it's such a complicated long journey and it takes so much slowing down to get actually accelerated to the center of the solar system. Could you say a few words about the transfer module and its propulsion system? Because I know a little bit of it and I think it's rather fascinating. 
Yeah, it's quite cool. Actually, I, I used to joke that on Buffy Colombo, we fly almost every type of thrusters that exist <laughs> because, I mean, for, for this type of missions, no? Uh, because on the on the proper on the transfer module, we so the, our workhorse is actually a combination of planetary flyby, which give us most of the delta v. We get 17 kilometers per second of, uh, of delta velocity from the flybys themselves. It's, it's, it's gigantic. But in order to make that sequence, uh, we, we could not rely. I mean, you didn't want to rely on just launching on the right day because otherwise you get a launch window that uh, basically never repeats itself. Yeah, the, How likely is it to get a natural combination of nine rendezvous without doing anything in between? So actually, the, the, the electric propulsion, we use it as the glue to make those rendezvous. So it stretches a bit the trajectory there, accelerates a little bit there so that we, we, we go from one hop to the next. And um, it's a very complex system. It uh, was built by uh, by the UK. In fact, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a British technology that was flown in that form on previous missions from Mars, but not with the same performance. I mean, uh, we had uh, missions, uh, Gucci mission was using this, a predecessor of this engine, but um, but not with the same type of, uh, of uh, thrust levels that we, that we use. Uh, so it was quite a challenge to assemble it and put it together. So that's one, and it consumes 10, up to 10 kilowatts of uh, power. That's why we have the huge solar panels that, uh, that we fly. Yes, we, we have a I model mean, to show the, the, the size of the solar panels. I, mean, yes, I, yeah. I think there was I a rapid and scale disassembly happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. For comparison, the, the MPO consumes about one kilowatt, yeah? So the, 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 the power generated by the transfer module is 10 times as large. And it's just for the electric propulsion, and then we have um, we have also chemical propulsion because uh, we need to desaturate our reaction wheels uh, to, that are used to to keep the attitude. But once in a while, they 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 have to be desaturated, and we use a chemical propulsion for that. And also, when we approach uh, uh, planetary flybys, we need to correct the trajectory. And the electric propulsion is great, but it's not fast. I mean, you're Slow. flying the equivalent exactly. of uh, blowing on your hand like this. This is very lim very very small. You need to to Five or long to accumulate the delta v. So if you want to do a, a very precise maneuver, but a bit larger, and you have to do it fast, it's not good for that purpose. So we carry chemical propulsion. I mean, when you compare it with with an electrical propulsion maneuver, when you go back to the chemical propulsion, is you can almost consider it as an instant change, right? Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. So we have the two, and uh, and we switch from one to the other. Okay, we, we haven't had to use the chemical for maneuvering too much because our electric propulsion is very good, and and the, the navigation has been very stable for this flyby we, we did a correction in august and we didn't need to correct again so uh it's uh it's, it's quite it changes a bit the operations as well i i, I flew on I, i've flown rosetta before on rosetta was a purely ballistic and chemical system uh, and there we had to we had to maneuver uh, before every flyby because you accumulate errors during during flight that uh, here are taken care of by electric propulsion so I get cool. the impression that you have in every historical mission. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's only two of them, but they're quite cool. Uh, but <laughs> important, important ones. Um, we have some questions for the audience, if you don't mind. Um, one of them is asking if the Japanese probe has a lander. I no, think it no, doesn't. No. We, we've given up on landing. I mean, <laughs> it's one challenge at a time. It's already... Uh, It's been it's been a long journey to get uh, to get the launch pad of this thing, and uh, so the Japanese probe is a is a spinner. It's a it's a satellite uh, uh, for for the for the audience who are here. Not unlike I would say maybe the cluster satellites. It's it's it rotates around its own uh, its own axis, 
um, and, and it has very large uh, antenna uh, scientific booms basically to, to make its measurements and it will fly on a nine hours orbit around the planet, highly elliptical. So no landing for that one, except the crash landing at the end, of course, but that's... Uh, and the and the something else. <laughs> in the, so okay, so it will be in an orbit um, that will be degrading over time. Yes. But yes. Uh, how long are we talking about? Ten, tens well, of years or thousands of years? Uh, okay, I don't think we make twenty years with that one, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> the environment okay. is very harsh. So the um, the two orbits are uh, uh, not maintained in the sense that they will naturally decay. And uh, there will be a re-entry, which, if I remember right, is um, we are talking very few years in the case of MMO. It's rather rapid, the re-entry in that case. And in the case of the MPO, we are quite lucky that, according to the analysis we've done, the orbit will be stable for about 50 years. Okay, we're coming we're coming down with a pericenter, which uh, is, is uh, from a thermal point of view, is quite demanding. So, But from an orbit stability point of view, we could keep going for a while. It's a question of how long the spacecraft will take to degrade beyond being usable, because I... I, I well, just as an anecdote, maybe uh, the spacecraft is white. You can see it here. It's shown by the colleagues in, in STEC. But uh, we know from ground tests that it won't stay white for very long because the temperature is so high that uh, the optical properties will start degrading. And in fact, in the test, we've seen that it gets dirty brown very quickly. And then it doesn't have the same um, the same protective pro properties once it's degraded. Also, our solar arrays are, are going to be subject to uh, to this environment for which they, they will operate at the edge of their design to temperature up to very close to 200 degrees they were validated for qualified for 200 degrees it's uh, so it's it's we will have to see how long we will really survive you know we always say yeah 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 our missions are designed for five years and actually we fly them for 20 MSI BP is maybe one of those that won't make it 20 years but we shall see I mean as long as it goes we'll be there to make the best out of it so we shall see one thing I think about Mercury is obviously its name suggests it's going really, really fast, isn't it? So once you're in orbit around Mercury, the, the spacecraft itself, uh, Bepi, the Bepi Columbus spacecraft, is going to be going really, really fast. Is, that, is, is there some relativistic effect that you have from flying at Mercury speed? Well, okay, I, I am not the best qualified person to talk about relativistic <laughs> physics, um, but it, we have an experiment that uh, intend to to uh, to basically uh, make measurements uh, to to uh, to. Well, I think maybe it's a big word to say to prove, but uh, to, to make to make measurements related to the to the relativistic theory because at Mercury you can. Now again, I'm an engineer and I'm, I'm not the best qualified person yeah. to talk credibly on this, so maybe I'll pass that to Vic happily. <laughs> For flight, uh, we have to to I mean our colleagues from the flight dynamics who control the trajectory of the satellite uh, are are the most uh, uh, accurate people that colleagues I know and and they are used to make computations a great level of detail that are required for navigating those crafts. So, for example, they do not uh, use uh, UTC as a time reference. They use uh, um, a different time reference that uh, takes into account uh, the, the relativistic effect from uh, flying in the solar system. No, um, So this, I'm aware of that, but uh, I'm not involved in the, in the physics and the computation of that. But certainly it's, uh, it's, an interest, it's one of the scientific fields for this mission as well. If I may, I have to... Logistics-wise, uh, I think that in three minutes we will be sharply cut and we will all be sent to the central room. Sadly, I would continue three hours more, <laughs> on this, as usual, every time I talk to, to one of my colleagues, and I hope we meet again. Uh, we have one quick question They are ask, uh, from the chat room. They are asking, uh, Nico Caprell is asking, where is the mission control of Bepi Colombo? 
Yeah, Nico, thanks for asking that because, of course, now we are not seeing each other physically. Uh, we are actually located in Darmstadt, Germany. It's the European Space Operations Center, ESOC, or VISA. Um, yeah, so that's in the, in, the, in the middle of Germany, close to Frankfurt. And I mentioned at the beginning that uh, you are newly appointed mission manager, but up to now you were uh, the flights operation manager for Pepe Colombo. What's the difference between these two jobs? What's the transition in between the two jobs? What does it mean? Well, okay, for 14 years, since 2007, I had been fortunate to be the spacecraft operations manager indeed for BP. So I took it uh, from the end of the design phase until the flight phase, basically, which meant that the job changed a lot along the years. I mean, at the beginning, it was studying paper to find out if the spacecraft would be operable and figure out what we need to do and then make it happen and design the ground segment and validate it and get ready for launch and so on. And now it's, fly it's flying, it's, it's making, implementing the mission on a daily basis, making sure that the craft remains healthy tackle anomalies, uh, make sure that the data comes down fine, is distributed to the users and so on. As mission manager, it's basically functionally a bit more abstract from the from the direct interface to the spacecraft. It's the overall responsibility for the project. It's a bit of a project manager role. It's just uh, not anymore dealing with the challenge of getting the spacecraft uh, built. Um, so in ESA, we have basically the two roles. We have the project manager that uh, is responsible for building the spacecraft, bringing it to the launch pad together with the support teams around, and then he hands over to the mission manager at the end of the commissioning phase. So um, it's, it's overseeing the, the implementation, but at, at a more, in a more managerial role, let's say. But still, there is a lot of, uh, I think, technical co coordination involved. Uh, my big responsibility as mission manager will make be to make sure that we are ready to make the best of the mission and um, maximize sense return once we arrive on target. Um, and I do that in collaboration with uh, other research centers, so ESOC, the, my former group uh, for the spacecraft operation, and the ESAC colleagues in Spain for the science operations part. I mean, uh, Kate before and uh, Sarah were talking about uh, about science operations as well. Um, so it's it's basically encompassing um, more groups, let's say, coordinating across more groups than than in my previous or semi current role. I just switched two days ago, so it's still uh, uh, very new. Yeah. And, and exciting, I assume. So it's time now that we have to Thanks break up. Me. Thank you, and Elsa, so much. Thank you very much, Elsa. Uh, thank you, chat room. Thank you, everyone has been watching today. Um, we will be uh, as well uh, using these interviews on the main podcast. The, where, where can where can people find the podcast, Matt? Uh, they can find it on Spotify and iTunes. It's the Interplanetary Podcast or go to interplanetary.org.uk. And, uh, well, I thank you, Kai, for joining us today on such short notice. Incredible help. Thank you for inviting. And can I make a quick plug? If you want to find out more about these missions, then please visit uh, ESA.int and go to Science and Exploration. There is a, Wepi, uh, a web and a Webby page. And, for example, for web, you'll be able to find... Uh, 3D animations in great detail of the instruments that we've been talking about that Sarah has been describing and of course lots of movies and information also for Beppy. So if you feel you caught a bit of iron thruster fire then <laughs> follow up. They build what they call a structural and thermal model. This is a, a, a mechanical structure that they use to test um, the robustness of the structure, so they submit it to the shock, vibration, and so on of the launch. 
and they put on it some hardware to uh, check out the thermal balance. So they will dress it up with thermal blankets and put some boxes that generate heat and so on, and they will make sure that the thermal design is more or less sound. So this model goes typically in a thermal vacuum chamber, like the one we have in the uh, test center in Holland of ESA. There is a, a big solar simulator there. They put it there, they submit it to, uh, uh, to all the conditions that the mission uh, will, will, so will see, and they check that the design is sound. They did that for BEPI. By the way, this model is now in the London Science Museum. If you ever go to London, check it out. It must be open. <laughs> uh, and then they move on to this thing. So this is the electrical model. We call it also engineering model. And it's meant to uh, check out the, all the data and electrical interfaces of the mission. And um, typically what you see, so it's, it's, uh, the MPO is very similar dimension as a flight model. They have cut out some corners on the back side here, which is the radiator side, because they didn't need it to mount boxes. But otherwise, it's the same. Um, the structure is not the flight structure. It's a bit simplified. But the, the, the topology of the structure is identical to the flight. Because they wanted, you see, it's very crowded. And actually, we're yeah. missing some, bus some boxes. So it's actually worse on the flight model, much worse. And they wanted to find out whether the harness would be long enough and so on. But they also functionally test this. This here, so the Bepi Colombo, I don't know how much you know, but it's a modular spacecraft. It's very futuristic in its shape. So it has four modules in total. The European scientific module, MPO, this is what you see here. The uh, Japanese put also a scientific spacecraft on top. We call it MMO. It's not present here, but they have models also for that. Then we have a transfer module that is actually represented by this table here. It's in flat sat configuration, okay, much more complex on the real flight, that is responsible for taking us to Mercury. So it carries a chemical and uh, ion propulsion, uh, as well as its own power distribution and its two own solar panels. And then we have a thermomechanical structure to pro uh, protect the MMO from uh, so solar energy during the transfer. So this you can disregard. It just looks like a nice cone on top, like a crown. It, it's uh, very pretty. And they built this model here to uh, find out the do's and don'ts of building the flight model, but also to functionally test everything. So they've used it to um, uh, exercise the onboard software. So it's not the only bench we have, but typically every single software function will have been exercised on this one. And we, NISOC, to test our procedure and so on, we've had a big series of tests in this as well. So when, when we started trying out the attitude and the orbit control modes of the satellite, which are notoriously complex generally for interplanetary, uh, we didn't want to do the first test on the PFM, which is a very flight model, which is a very precious resource. There is not necessarily much time available for that. And if it doesn't go well, you cannot retry very much. And we did it with this one. We had an equivalent of two, well, two or three weeks testing in total with this model. And Airbus uses using a lot. Now, the model, the, the spacecraft was built under uh, Airbus Defense and Space Leadership. So the model was initially based in Friedrichshafen for uh, many years. Actually, our first test with it was 2012. You can imagine it was already existing for a while. The onboard computer here is that old, <laughs> actually. And um, uh, then a few months ago, we used a, a break in the campaign to move it to ESOC. And the reason was that we had the time, and now it's set up and operational here, and then we don't have to do it after launch. Everything is set up before. But still, if we have problems after the launch, we need to test out things. Airbus is fully equipped to operate it from here, and then after launch, it will transfer the control to us permanently, and then it will be basically ours. 
So, um, so we can exercise all configuration here. We can simulate the, the stack, the crew stack, where all modules are uh, assembled together. We can simulate MPO standalone configuration. We can simulate module separations here. So play really the period where we uh, let the MMO separate from the stack to go into its own orbit. All these operations that are highly complex can be exercised here. And to some limited extent, we can even put some hardware in the loop. So you can see here we have mechanism. We have a, this is an antenna pointing mechanism. There is another one on the back side. Uh, we have a, a transponder here as well. So if we wanted, we could do tests with radio frequency. So that, that could become handy. But why it's very precious, it's the uh, electronics, the computers, uh, the, 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 the modules we have to store data. This is very difficult to simulate to the right level of accuracy functionally with the software simulators. We have them as well. They are quite good. But if you really want to troubleshoot low-level problems with uh, electronics, this is an invaluable resource. So same thing. It's a bit short. I don't know if you have specific questions related to this. <laughs> is, 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 have Japan got a similar? It, so would we, if we were in Japan right now, would there be someone like you talking about a model of the MMO part? I am not sure whether the Japanese have a real MMO 3D model like this one, but they have some mod models. We know this. They have a suitcase that can be used to uh, check out the interface. In fact, for a while, it was located in Friedrichshafen as well. It went to Estec, uh, the uh, Dutch Space Center visa, uh, before going to the uh, because. Of, before the spacecraft went to the launch site. And this, you could argue that this can be sufficient. You don't necessarily, depending on what you have on, on the spacecraft, you don't necessarily need a fully accurate model. In fact, for the MTM, you can see we have a flat sat. Mm. It's less fancy, but it's equally effective. And in fact, OK, for completeness, I should mention that the all-electric propulsion park part we don't have. Mm. This was actually delivered to the company who is uh, delivering the subsystem, and it's used as a test setup chain for the electric propulsion thrusters. So it's used in the live test chain for these thrusters. And if we had got it here, the room would be much more crowded because this is operating at uh, tens, well, above 10 kilowatts. So there are uh, power supply racks like this that are monsters that generate heat like crazy, that are on high voltage, so they are hazards for humans. When they told us that, we were wondering what to do, but in the end, they needed it elsewhere, so it's good. But so you, you don't necessarily need the full machinery like this, depending on the complexity of the satellite. But a model where I, I would expect they have the onboard computer that they can run the real onboard software and maybe some electronics as well. This I would, I would, uh, do, I would expect. Does it add to the complexity having to deal with the, the Japanese? Do, do you have to talk to each other a lot, or are they really separate spacecraft? They are quite separate, but we need to remember that as long as we fly together, we're one machine. So it, it's actually a pitfall to think of separate machines. I mean, these lessons were learned in the 60s by the Americans with the Apollo program. We're trying not to repeat that. <laughs> so from the very beginning, we, we have established interfaces with them. Um, but it is also true that during the cruise, they don't do very much. So we, we consider them a bit as a heavy payload. Yeah. So yeah. almost like for us in normal, it's categorized a bit as an instrument. Mm. Uh, even so, in reality, especially in the period where we separate from them, they are two equal. Uh, they are different in size, but and, and in weight, but in terms of uh, uh, contribution to the mission, they are equal partners. And in fact, uh, it's not delivering a hundred kilos uh, cent, uh, lander mm. from a three-ton spacecraft like it was on Rosetta. It's delivering a hundred something kilo to a one-ton satellite. The ratio is 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 uh, very different, yeah. So there are aspects we need to take into consideration. We don't 
talk to them every day. We typically, uh, up until recently, we had an interface meeting per year, and then we would interface per email. Um, and we, inter we, we really try to establish very clear interface points, and we focus on those. So our knowledge of their satellite is actually, I would not call it very detailed. Also, we have a, a bandpipe interface. So basically, we, we do not encode their command. They encode their own commands, and then we tunnel them through our satellites to theirs. So this means we are rather blind on what they do. I mean, we, we, we have a text encoding of the, of the pattern to have an idea which subsystem they are talking to, but we, we don't have the same level of uh, control and of knowledge as we have for this one. I mean, here I can build a stack myself, but on the MMO, we would not be able to do that. But it's sufficient. I mean, they are equal partners, and that's a fair way to work with, yeah. and it goes very well uh, so far. Fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Any other? Question for this? Maybe I should mention it's not the first time we get such models in ESOC. In fact, um, it started with Huygens. You probably heard of this mission that landed on the moon Titan of planet Saturn. It was with Cassini, right? Right, exactly. Huygens flew with Cassini, and for that, the, but Huygens was in ESA, the ESA component of the Cassini Huygens mission. So it was a, more like a Rosetta and Philae. Philae was Huygens and Cassini. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it was a, a, quite a complex uh, uh, surface asset, as you can imagine landing on an unknown world. So for that reason, there was a, a, a hardware model built by industry that we got delivered to ESOC. And this played an instrumental role in testing uh, final sequences before the landing on Titan. In fact, they even discovered some issues with this that could be then fixed. And uh, from then, it became a bit of a lesson learned on all this type of mission that it has a lot of value to get that. So when we started Rosetta, um, we, we discussed this also with uh, the project and industry. Eventually, we got the Rosetta model. It's over there in that building. Yeah. Now it's it's being dismantled, so it's not as pretty as it used to be because uh, it, since the mission is over, we are uh, preparing it to be hosted in a non-operational container building, so accessible to public, but not anymore used as a, as a, a spacecraft for operations. Uh, so this is ongoing. And what you probably cannot fully see, but I can assure you is there. In uh, Behind, there is a glass wall on that side. Mm -hmm. And you might just see that on the wall, there is a sign saying okay. Gaia AVM. So we have also the Gaia avionics model. So the Gaia is our uh, star mapper, so the successor of Hipparchos. And uh, basically, we have a table set, a bit like this one, much more uh, bigger and more complex, that, that is uh, located in the room on the back. For Solar Orbiter, we also have agreements to get the model. And for Juice, we will get one as well. So uh, we, we like them. <laughs> I mean, we have our own simulator as well. We have a software simulator, which we use to train our teams. So at the moment, for the launch, for instance, we do a Sims campaign. Maybe you heard about that. Uh, we play scenarios with a complete mission control team, contingency scenarios as well. This we don't do with this. It's very difficult to inject uh, failures on this type of model. I mean, or you need to damage the hardware, which nobody wants, so <laughs> you do it with software. But if you want to, to, as I said before, if you want to play very accurate uh, scenarios down to the behavior of the electronics and timing or debug problems with uh, at very, very low level of the bytes being transferred from one box to the other, then you need something like this. And on Rosetta, it, it, it was used like that. Did you have Scaparelli uh, and uh, things like that? No. So for ExoMars, we didn't get a model. The ExoMars mission was developed in an extremely short time frame. They were under huge time pressure to launch. And also there, the setup is very, very complex. They have a partnership with the Russians and the Americans. And actually, the Scaparelli module, even though it belongs to the mission, it was developed. It, it's li like, like the instrument. It was developed under national leadership. And when this happens, we don't typically inherit the modules. It's like what I said with the MMO. It's a Japanese module, so we don't get the module. Yep. Um, 
for Rosetta, same thing. We didn't get the filet under here. We, we had set test sessions with them, where DLR came with a, a suitcase or a, a rack that simulated filets. So we did interface tests prior to landing. Actually, they were very valuable, but they were always as a, as a co-venture uh, between two partner agencies, ISA and DLR in this case. And I think with Capali, it was a bit the same. And okay, there was no hardware involved. Actually, our visibility on the old Scaparly um, uh, software and testing was not, let's say, as high as we have on missions that we control fully, yeah. also from the management point of view. So this is a lesson that we keep learning, but it's difficult to put in place because uh, the, 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 the interfaces are very complex and the organization is also very complex. And the time, you need time to do this. So. And money. <laughs> <laughs> Time is money. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have anything else, then I hope you enjoy your visit here. Yeah, we are. Watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having questions. Thank you. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. But there we go. There, there, there was my little. There was a couple of interviews with Elsa Montanon. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm not saying that right, Lynn, and, and you're not helping me. You're not, you're not going to help me here. No. I'm not helping. I'm very intentionally keeping no, quiet. I know. Uh, I've, I've spotted. Somewhere between the spectrum of Elsa Montagnon and maybe like Montagnon. Yeah, it's but I don't somewhere. think it's the latter. Elsa Monty. Elsa. Yeah. There you El go. Just Elsa. I hope, hope we're on first name basis. <laughs> <laughs> just Elsa. And obviously being... Uh, and Sorry, been Elsa. on this mission for absolutely ages, which is always the interesting thing about how long people stay on these missions, and you just and you oh, just hope yes. they don't yeah. blow up on the launch pad or have some mysterious fault that happens to them out in don't space say. and all those kind of things. And I'm not even thinking about um, James Webb Telescope and all the things that can go wrong I, with that. I, uh, I knew you were going to say it. I was gritting my teeth. I was like, don't say James Webb because I'm already feeling a little bit sick oh, thinking I, about it because you just said the word blow uh, up on the launch pad and, and now it's I'm coming sad. Up. It is coming up. It's being, <laughs> oh my it's, gosh, it's, uh, it's probably being stacked Merry onto an Ariane 5 as we speak. And Beppe Colombo launched on an Ariane 5 right. as well. So, you know, and that, that made it, that made it, go. that made it. There you it, go, it's meant to it. be. So um, what are you up to this week, Lynn? This week, um, I am actually uh, teaching a class um, because, as some of you listeners know, I do research at the, a university in Sweden called Uppsala University. Um, we're actually doing a really fun uh, uh, first time ever course, which is uh, joint between the sort of physics side of our university and um, the geology, geocentrum side of the, of the university. And we're talking about space resources so it's a course, a uh, master's level course, uh, where we talk a little bit about very sort of what if scenarios. But if you were to sort of mine on, on uh, different uh, bodies, if you wanted to extract resources in some capacity uh, from space, how would you do that? And what would be the challenges that you face? Mm. So I'm, I'm busy doing that. <laughs> writing papers, teaching, good stuff, writing emails. <laughs> what about you? I am doing a festival this week called Winter Live with my college. So I'm going oh, to fun. be uh, work, yeah, working with lots of students, sound engineers, stage managers, creative artists, business students, all Ooh, running this come? festival. And I've, I've got I've got to mark them. So it's it's super busy and full on, but it should be good fun. One of my students came up with a slogan for my interplanetary podcast face masks that was putting your face back into public space. <laughs> 
which I thought was really good. <laughs> I love that. Okay, sold. Yeah, Get the so I might, I might have to start making those uh, face masks <laughs> for the next lockdown. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> We're no. just in whoa, time whoa, for the next lockdown. Well, yeah. whoa, what's happening? <laughs> Right. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm going to I'm going to let the spudcats go. Thank you very much for joining me, Lynn. And and let's Thank let's you. have a Christmas special soon with everyone Yay. on. And <laughs> we can work out the right. orbital trajectory of reindeers from the North Pole. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Excellent. And if anyone knows why it's a three to two resonant orbit. And have the definitive lowdown. Let me know. Write in. Yeah, and if anyone um, kept track of how many times I mentioned exoplanets, you can uh, tally that up for a bonus. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should have exoplanet buzzword bingo. Yeah, have a little ding 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 sound effect. <laughs> whoever whoever spots it first. <laughs> That's it. Bye. 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 Bye.